1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. The title of the message is Eyewitness Good News. Now, if you, how many people have been with us or following us in uh, 1 Corinthians? Nobody. Oh, a few. Okay. Um, you probably know that we are out of order here. We, uh, we just finished chapter 11, and we skipped ahead just a little bit so that we could get to this Easter message. And we'll go back and pick up in uh, chapter 12, beginning on Thursday. Uh, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, begins this way. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. If you have been with us as we've gone through the book of Corinthians, you know that Corinth was a church with problems, issues. Let me run over a few for you. There were divisions in the church. There were factions, different groups saying, well, I follow this teacher. I follow this other teacher. There was the love of worldly wisdom. They lived just 40 miles down the street from Athens. They loved to sit around and philosophize. They didn't really uh, weigh so much with the Bible. There was a problem of sexual immorality. There was a problem of lawsuits between believers. There was the problem of divorce. They were even having arguments about eating meat sacrificed to idols and head coverings. We've covered all of those things. Each chapter, Paul turns over, it seems, a new rock and out scurries another issue. Well, chapter 15, Paul will turn over the biggest rock of all. He says that there, there were some in Corinth, apparently, who called themselves Christians who did not believe in the resurrection. Now, go figure that. That's, that's an oxymoron. A Christian who does not believe in the resurrection an oxymoron like jumbo shrimp, pretty ugly, temporary tax increase. And you've heard this one, my favorite, Microsoft works. You, you can't be a Christian and not believe in resurrection. Resurrection is, the resurrection is what separates Jesus from Buddha, from Muhammad, Jesus is a risen Savior. Unless he's risen, none of it makes sense. See, Jesus claimed that he is the son of the living God. In Matthew 12, his enemies, if you will, the Pharisees, they asked him for a sign. Like, we don't believe you. Give us a sign, Jesus. Give us a sign to back up your claims that you truly are the son of God. We want proof. Most of you know, Jesus said, look, I'm not going to give you any sign but this. I'll give you one sign. The sign of the prophet Jonah. Matthew 12 verse 40 says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's talking about being dead, being buried, and coming once again from the grave. And as we look back 2,000 years ago, we see that the proof was in the pudding. The proof was in the Romans putting him to death on the cross. Joseph of Arimathea putting him in a grave. Pilate putting a boulder on that cave and putting a seal upon that door and putting a team of crack soldiers around that grave. Ultimately, the proof that Jesus is who he said he is is in the fact that God was putting life back into his physical frame on that Easter morning. Without resurrection... There is no validity to Jesus' claims. 
I mean, if the proof that Jesus offered for his claims was the resurrection, if he said, look, this is how I'm going to prove it to you, I will be raised from the dead. Well, if he's not raised, then he's a liar. And he's not worthy of our worship. And verse 19 of this very same chapter, if you look at it, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, says that we're to be pitied. If we're Christians and we believe that Jesus uh, is our Lord and he never rose from the dead, we're stupid. This is a room full of stupid people. If Jesus has not raised from the dead. If, on the other hand, he really did rise from the dead, then that validates his claim to be the son of the living God. And then, of course, that forces us to deal with a whole bunch of other things that he claimed. Mainly this one. John fourteen six, I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the life. No one, absolutely no one comes to the Father except through me. Yeah, the issue, did the resurrection really happen, was central. It is central. Some of these messed up Corinthians were wrestling with the whole idea of physical resurrection. So Paul says, all right, brothers. Let's start again. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you. In other words, I declare again to you the gospel I've already preached to you. He says, let's go over this again. See, the gospel, most of you know, means simply good news. Back in that day, the gospel, to hear the word gospel had no real religious connotation it simply meant good news they they didn't have good news bad news jokes they had gospel bad news jokes like this one the slave driver of the roman ship leered down at his galley slaves and bellowed i've got some gospel and some bad news the gospel is that you'll be getting double rations tonight the happy murmuring of the surprised slaves was interrupted by the bellow of the slave driver The bad news is that the commander's son wants to water ski. So they didn't have good news, bad news. They had gospel. That's that's how very normal that word was. Gospel. It just means good news. In verse 3, Paul will remind them of what the good news is. Verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And here it is. Here it comes. The gospel. Good news. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That is our family memory verse this week, because if you know that verse. You've got the gospel with you. If you memorize those two verses, you can go to anyone and if they say, hey, have you heard about this, this thing called the gospel? It's right there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses, or 15, verses 3 and 4. This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That very first Easter morning, that's exactly the good news. Now, first notice, though, that this is only good news for sinners. It says Christ died for our sins. If you've never sinned, there's no good news for you here. If you've never cheated, you never stole, if you never committed adultery, if you've never been angry without a holy cause, if you've never had sex before marriage, if you've never lusted after a woman, if you've never told a lie, 
if you've never lost it with your kids, if you've never disobeyed your parents, if you never broke a law, even speeding, I knew that would get you. (laughs) If you've never done any of these things, then there is no good news for you here. But if, in fact, you are a lying, stealing, no good horse thief like the rest of us, there is good news for you here. God has made a way that even sinners like us can stand in the presence of a holy God. Here's how. Verse 3 again. Number one, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Number two, he was buried. And number three, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. These are three facts. These are facts that are central to the gospel. They are not poetry. They are not philosophy. These are facts in history. If they really happened, this is really good news. This is gospel. But if they did not really happen, then all of Christianity comes falling down like a house of cards. Let's look at the first one. It says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, by itself, that's not really good news. I mean, in the days between the crucifixion and the resurrection, there are no accounts of excited disciples saying, hey, a man came to save us and now he's dead. By itself, that's not particularly great news, but it was necessary. You students of the Bible know Hebrews 9.22 that says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. All the sins that I listed and, and all the ones I didn't, without the shedding of blood, those cannot be covered. They cannot be forgiven. They cannot be wiped away. See, that's good news as far as it goes. I mean, it's good news that someone was willing to die to take the punishment for your sin, for my sin. But if he stays dead, that's not all that good news. What about the second one? It says he was buried. Okay, again, not really great news. Okay, a man came to save us. He took our punishment. Now he's dead and we buried him. Again, it's not particularly great news, but it's necessary. It validates the fact that he died. I mean, You've heard me say this. He wasn't just a little dead. He was really dead. He was really quite sincerely dead. Burial has a way of confirming that. If you're dead, you get buried. Jesus was buried just like the Bible said he would be. But still, that's not that great of news. No, the gospel is not really good news without the third part. Verse 3 again, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. If If someone claims to be God and dies for my sins, that's noble. But it's not good news by itself. If he's then buried, well, that's expected. It's not good news. But if he claims to be God and says, I'm going to prove it by being raised the third day, and then he really is raised the third day, that's really good news. So if this Jesus stuff turns out to be true, that is awesome. It means every sin you've ever committed can be forgiven you. It means you can have a loving relationship with a holy God. 
no matter what you've done. It means when you die, when your loved ones die, it's not saying goodbye forever. It's saying, I'll see you soon. That's pretty good news. But is it true? <laughs> That's the question. Is it true? Well, we have evidence here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's consider the evidence. Let's, uh, for the first witness, let's call up the Bible itself. The Old Testament. Look at verse 3 again. It says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. According to the Bible, according to the Old Testament that was written at that time, He died for our sins just the way the Bible said He would. And that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. If you're wondering if this is all true, Jesus' death, resurrection were prophesied 2,000 years before Paul wrote these words. So let's address the first witness, the Bible, the Old Testament. Mr. Bible, did Jesus truly die according to the Scriptures, according to what you say? Well, if the Bible could speak, if it could actually walk to the witness stand and speak in an audible voice, I can tell you the testimony would go on for a long time. Psalm 22, for instance, is a detailed description of crucifixion. It was written 2,000 years before crucifixion, crucifixion existed. Daniel 9 predicted to the day when Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. But turn with me to Isaiah 53. We don't have, there's no way we have time to go through all the prophecies that talked about Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection. But Isaiah 53 is a really efficient place because there's a lot of good stuff in Isaiah 53. By the way, no one doubts that Jesus lived and died and was buried, right? I mean, those are historical facts, that he lived, that he died, that he was buried. Even an atheist will tell you, yes, those things are true. He did live in history. It's the third claim that's all important, right? Well, does our Bible say that Jesus died according to the Scriptures? First of all, that he died. If the Bible were, were uh, on the stand today, he would turn you to Isaiah 53. Look with me at verse 3. He died, and it says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was killed. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. There's a fairly detailed description of a Messiah that when they wrote this, nobody was looking at for the Messiah to be a suffering Messiah. But here it is in Isaiah 53. 2,000 years before Jesus walked the earth. So, there's that. And also, by the way, Paul doesn't mention in our text, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but 
Jesus was also buried according to the scriptures. And we see it right there. Isaiah 53, keep reading. Verse 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. We know that he was given a rich man's grave. There's so many wonderful things, wonderful proofs from the Old Testament. So what about the whole, did Jesus rise, though? That's the most important thing. Well, if the Bible were on the witness stand, just let me give you a list. This is a really not even a, a complete list by any means. Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Isaiah 53 here, Hosea 6, Jonah 1, Matthew 12, Luke 24, Acts 2, Acts 13, Acts 26, 1 Peter. All of these talk about the fact that Jesus rose according to the scriptures. So if, if the Bible were on the witness stand, we'd say, okay, okay, we get it. Get to the point. Look at first Isaiah 53, verse 10. And we will see about the resurrection. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. He will be raised up. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sign of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. See, the Old Testament very clearly says that, yeah, he, he died, he was buried, and he will be raised again according to these specifics, and Jesus fulfilled every one. Now, the chances of one man coming and fulfilling all the prophecies in the Old Testament are astronomical. Without a doubt, then, the word gives testimony in favor of the resurrection. But Paul is just now getting cranked up. What follows in verse 5 of First Corinthians, turn back with me if you need to, First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5, what follows is a parade of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus alive after the resurrection. Look with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5. It says, And that he was seen by Cephas, that was Peter, and then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also. Paul saying, I saw him too, as by one born out of due time. Starting on that Easter morning, over the next 40 days, 40 physical days in history, Jesus kept showing up. He kept showing up to people in a real physical body. He told Thomas, he said, Look, feel my hands. It was a real physical body. Over the next 40 days, Jesus appeared to, if you count them up here, over 513 eyewitnesses. And that's not including the women who saw him first. You know why? You know why Paul didn't include that? The, the fact that the women saw him first? It was because in that day, in that patriarchal, I can never say that word, patriarchal society, in that day, if you were building a court case, you would not use the testimony of women because it wasn't admissible in court. Now, it wasn't right, but that was what it was. So Paul was building his strongest case. But isn't it interesting that God chose women to be his first 
witnesses. Now, let's go through the list of Paul's witnesses. Verse 5, he says, and that he was seen by Cephas. That's Peter. You guys know Peter. Big, hulky guy says, Lord, I will never deny you. These other bozos might deny you, but I will not deny you. And hours later, he was saying, I never knew the guy. I don't know him. When Jesus was resurrected, Peter had failed Jesus. He had made so many promises. He had made so many promises and eventually heard himself saying, let me be anathema. Let me be damned if I've ever known that man. He was swearing that he had never known Jesus. So think about it. Easter morning comes along and Peter hears from the women. Jesus is alive. Oh, and he said he wants to talk to you. What dread? What are you thinking? If that's you. But we do know the rest of the story, right? We know that Jesus came and restored Peter. He put him in ministry. Now, not to get too serious on you real quick here, but maybe this Easter morning, maybe that's you. Maybe you are like Peter. You've made a lot of promises. And you failed Jesus. You look behind you as a trail of broken promises. If that's you this morning, I have a message for you. Jesus wants to talk with you. But it's not bad. He's alive. He wants to talk with you. He wants to restore you. He wants to put you in ministry. Verse 5 says, and he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Now, that's not literally twelve. Thomas was not at the first meeting. And, of course, Judas was out hanging out somewhere. But they were called the twelve. You know, like that was their, that was their moniker. That was like the dirty dozen. And that would probably be pretty accurate, too. Thomas was not at the first meeting when Jesus showed up to the twelve. And you guys know the story of Thomas, right? He doubted. Now, why did Thomas doubt? We don't know for sure, but I kind of have my suspicions. Maybe Thomas thought during the time after the crucifixion, but before the resurrection, maybe Thomas thought something like this. Look, I tried that believing in Jesus stuff. I believed in Jesus. I believed in him completely. I believed that he was who he says he was. I believed he was the Messiah, our rescuer. But then he kept walking to the cross. I kept believing. I just knew that he would, at that last minute, he would lay down that cross and he would make those guys toast. I just knew it. But he never did. Thomas is thinking. He just gave up. He died. Could be Thomas was saying, look, don't ask me to believe in him again. I won't do it. I'll believe him when I can put my fingers in his wounds. Well, you guys know the story. A week later, Jesus appears, flesh and blood, says, uh, Thomas, come here. Put your fingers in my wounds. Here's another question. Maybe today... You are like 
Thomas. Unlike Peter, your biggest problem isn't that you've let the Lord down. For you, it's you feel like the Lord has let you down. Maybe things haven't turned out the way you thought they should. Maybe the time when Jesus should have saved the day for you has long come and gone. And maybe in your heart of hearts, you're really thinking, no, I won't allow myself to really trust in him. If that's you, Jesus has a message for you today. Jesus would say to you, as he did to Thomas, I have not failed you. I've saved you with these nail-scarred hands. Jesus would say, I'm just doing it differently than you expected. If that's you today, Jesus reaches out his nail-scarred hands to you and says, will you trust me now? Well, Thomas' response was, you find it in John 20, verse 28. Thomas, when Jesus said that, he said, my Lord and my God. If that's you today, I hope you make the same response. So, we've heard the testimony of the word. We've heard the testimony of Peter. We've heard the testimony of the twelve. Look at verse 6. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. This is to remind you, once again, we are not dealing with a legend, a parable. We're not dealing with an allegory. We're talking about a real event that either did or did not really happen. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Paul calls the word, then Peter, then the twelve to the stand. Now, it's like Paul opens the doors of the courtroom and in streams a parade of 500 people willing to testify that they have seen with their own eyes the same thing that these other witnesses have seen. Paul says in verse 6, look, over 500 people saw him at one time. And he says, and most of them at this writing, when he wrote it, most of them are still alive today. Now, they're not today. But when Paul wrote it, do you understand he had that much confidence? He's saying to the Corinthians, most of these guys you can still check this out with. Go and talk with them if you need to. There are 500 people that saw Jesus alive. Now, where did this appearance take place? Nobody knows for sure, but most people think it was probably in Galilee, on a hillside in Galilee. Matthew 28, verse 10, when Jesus was resurrected, he said, do not be afraid. He's talking to the women. He says, go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. No doubt, we know that Jesus showed up sometime later in Galilee. No doubt, word had spread. You know, there's a lot of disciples that were maybe on the fence with the whole crucifixion thing. And they're like, Did you hear? Jesus says he will come back and he will meet us in Galilee. So however it happened, 500 people were gathered in the same place at once. And they all saw the risen physical body of Jesus speaking with them. Now, how do you explain that away? Well, people have tried. Lee Strobel, I don't know if you know his name. He is uh, a person who was a journalist. He is a journalist, but he went to try to discredit the uh, resurrection. And he's like, well, this is a hard one to deal with. How do, I, how do I deal with this whole 500 witnesses? He said he went to a, a psychiatrist, a psychologist guy, asked him, look, 
I have a theory. I think it's because it was a, a hallucination, a mass hallucination. That doctor who had been in school so often, so, so long, said, uh, well, Lee, there's a problem. Hallucinations are very individual things. You, if the chances of you having the same hallucination as one person beside you is literally next to nil. But 500, he says, it would be a bigger miracle than Jesus raising from the dead. So if that's true, then you have to accept the testimony of these 500 witnesses. Think about it. What if you were on, on the jury in a murder case and... Eyewitness after eyewitness said the same thing. They said, I saw him. He really did it. Over 500 of them. I mean, you can be convicted of a felony on the, the, the witness of one, definitely two witnesses. There are 500 witnesses that Paul had confidence in saying, now some of these guys have died, but most of them you can talk with. Now, as if 510 witnesses weren't enough, Paul calls to the stand... <laughs> A hostile witness. You guys know what a hostile witness is, right? Someone who's unexpected. Oh, wow, I wouldn't have expected him to have to, you know, he's maybe not happy about it. In this case, that's not exactly uh, applicable, but it was definitely an unexpected witness. Look at verse 7. It says, after that, he was seen by James. We're talking about the brother of Jesus. If there was ever a witness that would have been hostile to the idea that Jesus was God... It would have been one of his brothers. I mean, James said for much of his life, look, I, I grew up with him. He was a normal kid, just like the rest of us. I mean, he never filled up the bathtub and then walked on water. <laughs> he never poked the dog's eyes out just so he could heal him. <laughs> My brother was a normal kid. <laughs> That's why in Mark 3... After Jesus had declared himself the Lord of the Sabbath. There's indication that his family, no doubt James included, attempted an intervention of sorts. Uh, yeah, apparently Jesus has lost it. He now thinks he's Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> if there was ever a witness preconditioned against the divinity of Jesus, it would have been his brothers. Now, how many times did James hear, why can't you be like your big brother? If there was ever a guy who was looking for a reason not to believe, it would have been James. Yet it is this very same James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote in his epistle, if you were to turn to James chapter 1 in your Bible, in your lap, he wrote these words. I am James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James had gone from saying, he's just my brother, to saying, he is my Lord. Now, that's pretty compelling evidence. What was it that changed James? Well, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 15 tells us is that he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus resurrected. That would have been an interesting moment to see. How would that conversation have went? I am so sorry that I doubted you. All of his claims, every claim that Jesus made was confirmed to James. It was one more eyewitness account. Now, maybe today, if you haven't found yourself in the list of witnesses yet, maybe you are like James. 
Maybe you've grown up with Jesus. He's always been a part of your life. I mean, your mom and dad always prayed. You've always prayed. It was always like he was around. And maybe you've seen him as a friend and a brother, even a mentor all your life. Is there a message for you? I think it would be the same message that the resurrection spoke to James, which is this. Jesus says, I am not just your brother. I am not just someone you've grown up with. I am almighty God. Jesus would say, I don't want to just be your friend and your advisor. I am your God. I can tell you, if he is only your friend, your advisor, a brother to you, you are missing out. Because the Bible says that he is one that we can cast all of our cares upon, our worries, our burdens. Jesus would say to you, if, if that's you, if you've grown up with him, but you kind of, you know, I don't know, just never really been that close to him. He says, I am God. You can cast your cares upon me. I can take it. Verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7 says, After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. And there were many more appearances throughout the 40 days. And now, talk about a hostile witness. Look at verse 8. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, there's a hostile witness. Paul calls himself to the stand. You guys know the story. Acts chapter 9. Paul is in the middle of going house to house, dragging out Christians so that he can take them to court. He's already kind of given his stamp of approval, watched on as Stephen, the first martyr, was killed. There was not one more hostile to Jesus and to his church than Paul, than Saul at that time. His name was Saul. He's, he's on the road to Damascus looking for more Christians that he might take. You guys know the story. Jesus knocked him to the ground and said, Saul, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Why are you persecuting me? Saul saw Jesus with his own two eyes. And if you remember, Saul was blind for a while because of the brightness of his glory. Twenty-five years earlier than Paul is writing these, these words, if you had asked any Christian in that area, who would you be most surprised to be converted? Saul. What made the difference? The risen Christ. He met Jesus Paul still can't believe it. Look at verse 8. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. That, those last words actually is the word for miscarriage. It means to be one born too late. Stillborn. Paul was still aware of the pain that he had caused the church. And no doubt there were some when he was saved that looked at it like a miscarriage of justice. I, you're kidding me. Paul? Saved? I mean, Saul? The guy who was trying to kill us? And apparently Paul wrestled with that because look at verse 9. He says, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. See, Paul knew that he did not deserve to be saved. He did not deserve to be forgiven, much less an apostle. Verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I 
but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. You guys notice the word grace there? Paul did not deserve to be chosen. He did not deserve to be forgiven by God. But if, if he deserved it, then it's not grace. Most of you, maybe all of you know, grace, once again, is the unmerited, unexplainable, incomprehensible love of God. The, the, where you go, Lord, I, I don't deserve this. Grace is G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Lastly, maybe you are Saul today. Maybe you have not believed in Jesus. I think if that's the case, it's because you haven't investigated the facts. Or maybe you do know the story, but you think you are not worthy. Let me say it again. This is good news for sinners. If you are a sinner, then you qualify for the grace of God. Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day exactly like the scriptures said he would be for your sin. If you've never known him, you can be forgiven. You can be made new, but you must believe. I believe in this service alone. God has given you everything you need to believe. Romans 10, 8 and 9 tells you how to deal with the information you've been given. The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. In other words, Jesus is right here right now and the word has spoken. The way you become saved is if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, it's a guarantee. It's a guarantee that Jesus secured by his death, burial, and resurrection. But you have to act upon it. 